This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS section on medical education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, a pulmonary critical care attending at New York University and associate program director there. And today we'll be discussing the recent ATS Scholar article, Evolving Needs of Critical Care Trainees During the COVID-19 Pandemic, a Qualitative Study. I'm joined by two of the study authors, Dr. Jamuna Krishnan and Dr. Carrie Aronson. Both hail to us from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine, just a couple miles north of me. Dr. Krishnan is an instructor of medicine specializing in obstructive lung disease, healthcare disparities, and systems improvements. And Dr. Aronson is an assistant professor and an expert in interstitial lung disease and pulmonary fibrosis. Jimena and Carrie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I was drawn to your article. One is my kind of role as a fellowship APD, but I also thought that we don't really discuss qualitative studies, you know, that much. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to highlight this type of research for our listenership. So let's just start and dive right in. Gemina, why? Why did you decide to, to study this? What were the factors that motivated you to study this problem? I think the number one at the time was that I was finishing fellowship in March 2020 when the pandemic first affected New York City. And so as a trainee, I I felt that we all as trainees had a unique insight. And I think that's from a couple of different standpoints, our experience as critical care trainees, I thought was would or I hypothesized would be different than the experiences of, you know, other trainees, because, you know, taking care of patients with COVID was managing acute respiratory failure, which is well in line with our training goals. But then at the same time, it was extremely stressful, as you all know, from what we were facing. So I just thought that was a really unique voice that was missing from the current literature that I saw being generated at the time, which was from other perspectives. Some of it was from more like leadership or program director perspective. So I just wanted to highlight what things were like from the trainees themselves. Makes sense. It was a very, this is a singular event in, in you know, the, the, our, our professional careers. And so I definitely hijacked a lot of people's, you know, what people have been doing beforehand and then even afterwards. So a very important thing to kind of study is, you know, what the effects were of COVID-19 on our trainees. So it makes perfect sense. So, you know, there have been prior studies on COVID-19's effect on medical training. Carrie, in what ways was your study unique or different or building upon the prior ones? Yeah, sure. So Gemini alluded to this a little bit already, but you know, at the time when we first um, came up with the concept for the study and the idea, most of the manuscripts and papers that were coming out were from perspectives of um, people sort of in leadership position, program director positions, or sort of in survey format. Um, and I know we could talk a little bit about the format that we chose um, doing a qualitative study instead. And in addition, you know, more so on sort of the resident and medical student level. And as Jamina mentioned, you know, one of the unique things being a critical care trainee is this is so foundational to our training, right? to critical care physicians, acute respiratory failure. And so the sort of the level of exposure and the level of impact on training at the time, you know, became the training, right? And so for many people, and so 
while there was some literature that had come out mostly related to how this was impacting curriculum and sort of what, what parts of the curriculum maybe were missing or people were missing out on, we really hypothesized from our own experiences, but then also others, you know, just in conversation with, with other fellows that there's a lot that's being missed, you know, a lot that we haven't uncovered yet in terms of sort of this multidimensional impact on training that goes beyond just the, the curriculum. And so we really wanted to be able to uncover that and focus on that because it's so important when you're thinking about how to move forward, and, you know, how to intervene productively. Great. You know, so you're, yeah, the differences between kind of the critical care trainees as opposed to the medical students, the residents, these different kind of areas or gaps in what had been studied previously. And then you kind of mentioned of how these were, it's different. This is within our wheelhouse of, of what the training is supposed to be like. And then, yeah, you kind of alluded to it that you guys chose rather than, you know, kind of an easier format, like a sending off a survey, you know, sending off a PD survey or one to the, the fellows, you really went a, a step further and went into kind of qualitative focus groups and semi-structured interview for your design. Can you talk a little bit about the choice? That, uh, why? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, like I had mentioned, you know, there had been some survey studies prior, which generates helpful information. Certainly, you know, the reason to consider doing a qualitative study is, you know, really when there's sort of no precedent or no framework for this ever existing before. And certainly, you know, there's really not right for, for critical care trainees going through a pandemic, you know, when you look at the literature prior to COVID, there's really not much of a precedent for that. And so the, you know, the ability to really hone in and uncover things that have either been missed or nuances in the experiences or impact of training during this time, a qualitative study we felt really sort of was suited best for that. You know, you're often uncovering themes that, you know, haven't really either haven't been described before or in that detail. And, and we were really hoping to be able to do that. So it's sort of used often for hypothesis generating um, type of studies, which you could say in a way this was because we were really trying to uncover what some of the issues were to then move on and you know, see what are the areas that we should focus on in the future. And we chose to do one-on-one -on -one and focus group interviews, partially because, you know, there are different approaches. You get, you can get different information when you're talking to someone one-on-one -on -one versus in a group as they're reliving the experiences together. You know, also, and we wrote about this in the manuscript, some of it was just based on people's availability, right? It's easier to schedule one-on-one -on -one interviews than focus groups. But certainly we, we wanted to provide the option for people to do both you know, be in a group format or, or do a one-on-one -on -one interview. And people were able to choose what they felt most comfortable with, which we thought making sure people were comfortable during the study was very important to us. No, great points. Just the, the level of how depth you can go into compared to the survey, hard to ask follow-up questions when you're getting a survey back. And especially when you're, you're in new ground and new territory, that ability to really kind of explore you know, the, these kind of things. And I think you're going to see, you know, through the rest of you know, our conversation today is just about the depth of that and what the results are, are so much richer than, than uh, you know, often from a, a survey study. So Gemina, what were, what exactly were you studying? What were your specific study questions, your objectives? Can you give us a little understanding framework of how you kind of went about developing that, that structure? So I think our two main objectives, one was to just broadly understand the unique needs of critical care fellows as they were at that time continuing to work through the pandemic. And the second was to organize those needs into a sort of framework that we could give to academic institutions so that they 
could reflect on what they were providing in their training to identify opportunities to develop an intervention or, you know, to improve or, you know, strengthen a particular part of their curriculum. So it was really like, I guess overall it was to understand the needs, then organize them in a way that they could be intervened on potentially. And, you know, while I was reading your article, it discussed uh, using a topic guide based on critical incident stress debriefing, which kind of piqued my interest. Carrie, what is this model? Sure. So this interview technique is commonly used for structuring discussions with people who work in roles such as first responders or, you know, after responding to a traumatic event or a disaster, it's often used in that capacity. And, you know, when you're writing a topic guide for qualitative study, you really try to find some framework or some model to base your questions off of. And we, you know, in discussing with the research team thought that this might be in particular a good way, a good approach, specifically because during, especially the beginning of the pandemic and and throughout even sort of that first year and beyond, caring for patients with COVID was potentially very traumatic in that experience. And so we thought this model would provide a good framework to help people think through their experiences. And the way that it works is you start sort of using a factual retelling of your experiences in the events, and then able to sort of go in depth more and talk about, you know, the emotional responses to that. And so we thought it would provide an opportunity to do both of those things and really get more in depth with some of the questions that we are asking the trainees. That's great. I think, you know, I'm hearing these things of model and framework and giving structure too, you know, because people oftentimes are thinking, and I think those are some of the limitations of starting a, a, a qualitative study like this with semi-structured interviews or others is where do you start from and, and uh, you know, basing it always on kind of educational theories, models, frameworks that helps, you know, kind of uh, get over that hump of that inertia of starting that, that process. So that's great. So, you know, we've talked about kind of the purpose or the background, a little bit about your your, your design with the, the focus groups and interviews and, uh, and methodology. So let's go into the results at this point. So it, it sounded like five themes emerged, the first being the need for curricular adaptation to meet evolving training needs. Jimeno, can you talk about your findings related to curricular gaps? And then you also mentioned in the paper autonomy and technology. Sure. So for curricular gaps, I think the what we were hearing from many of the participants, the fellows, were that in the pandemic, many of them were reassigned from their current rotation. So for example, if they were on a procedural rotation where they were doing things like bronchoscopy and EBUS, well, that ended and they were just full time in the ICU. And even in the ICU, like if you were at an institution where the fellows did a lot of their own intubations, depending on what sort of, you know, protocol that the institution adopted, they may not be doing those intubations anymore. So there were just gaps. I think a lot of them fell in, you know, understandably in the procedural aspects, but then also, you know, for people, for example, that wanted, you know, to be an ILD specialist, like those clinics were toned down a lot too. So there that was another area was like pulmonary knowledge and some of these like subspecialty type knowledge areas. And so I think what has resulted or what people describe is that as they were moving on to getting jobs, for example, if you had to go get a job where you were doing EBUS, well, your comfort level understandably is lower and maybe your confidence. And so I think, you know, we're still only a couple years out. So 
I, you know, now I wonder like what happened to those people and, and did they feel like they were able to address those gaps? And so that's one aspect. In terms of the autonomy, again, when you were many, especially in March, many people were pulled out of their rotations and said to go run an ICU type converted floor independently. And so those, I think, who had some experience being autonomous on nights or whenever, maybe had expressed more comfort, whereas those people who didn't have that in their program where they were constantly supervised may have had more trouble with that. And so participants were just saying that, like, you know, even beyond the pandemic, we need to really evaluate, like, what we're doing around topics like autonomy and supervision to best prepare trainees for transitioning to an attending role. And then I think the aspect that was brought up about technology was really interesting. I think there were two things. One was video visits, which are a new thing for all of us. And so how to best care for patients in the video visit format. But then the other was like technology for medical education. When you move into a Zoom conference, that's great because you can participate remotely. You can go to a, you know, offsite rotation. But then there are some of these like less tangible things that you're missing. Like when you're all in person at a conference, there's a lot of like social interaction that's really helpful for like, you know, mental health or, you know, networking. And so now we're seeing like these hybrid conferences where you're half in person, half on Zoom. And, I, you know, those seem like really difficult to present at. So I think, you know, just being more intentional about how we're using technology for education. Uh, so much of what you said resonates with me. I mean, uh, we had probably very similar experiences here during the kind of, uh, you know, spring 2020s, you know, time period. And, you know, thinking about those curricular gaps that our fellows had with pulmonary and being shifted into the ICUs and and missing out on some some of that, particularly the pulmonary. And we also saw in the residents as well that they were very shifted into the, the ICUs and then weren't on our consultative services as much as well. Autonomy issues went both ways. We saw them also rise to meet those needs. And so we were like, wow, they can do quite a lot, you know, uh, as well. And then the technology stuff and, and the loss of the social, you know, is kind of one thing that you were talking about. I remember when going back to ATS and back to chest, and I can't tell you how many people were like hugging each other when, you know, you're back in that atmosphere of, of in-person as opposed to the, the, the virtual world. So yeah, these are all very, you know, resonant themes that, that you're talking about. Now, move on to the second theme, which was COVID's impact on career development. We saw a lot of residents engaging in so much critical care time that, that you know, that really kind of affected their future career choices positively or negatively, both ways probably. And so what were you finding specifically with the, the fellows, Carrie? Yeah, so um, this sort of kind of goes off of what um, Gemina started saying, but I think also in, in more depth, you know, obviously there was the impact on the curriculum and sort of your ability to do certain procedures or your comfort level with different parts of the specialty. It's really more than that because, you know, such as you just alluded to, people's opinions of the of the career path, right, or sort of what they are now choosing to do or how they feel about, especially critical care that came up the most, obviously, that was like the most in everybody's face during that time. And, you know, and, and the decision to want to pursue critical care more versus not at all versus even to the decision, you know, the thoughts of not wanting to be in medicine anymore, you know, people are questioning a lot of these things. Um, certainly, you know, it definitely brought up questions about, you know, the career path, um, when it came to sort of what the decision is to do, you know, what your decision is to do um, clinical work. And then, you know, 
on top of that, there's, you know, in at academic centers, which is many of the fellows that we spoke with or come from academic centers, you know, there's some scholarly work involved, whether it's a lot of research or, you know, a, a, you know, a smaller research product, you know, people were pulled away from that for a long period of time. And, and so it really impacted people's productivity, especially if they were looking to pursue that as a career option. And, you know, physician scientists, you know, are so that career path is so fragile and, and hard and difficult to pursue already. And then when you throw this into the loop, it's, it's like, you know, an enormous hurdle that it makes it impossible for, you know, for many people, um, not just being pulled away from, you know, from the research, but, um, you know, the funding available for research, the funding available to be hired into that type of position, you know, even a few years down the line, even now, um, you know, as people are, are experiencing that. And then, you know, the availability of mentors, right? Everybody's mentor was doing the same thing as all the fellows. And so, you know, everybody was very stretched thin. So it was, you know, the impact was in multiple levels. And we heard that from the fellows and you just, the decision on, you know, what to do in the future, what a job offer is going to look like, you know, how is that going to be different? What kind of jobs are available? What is the funding available to hospitals now that everybody lost a lot of money, you know, during the time of COVID? And so it's a really big issue. And certainly it was an issue when we spoke to people during the study, but we see that now we're seeing the impact with our colleagues. And so it's a very real thing and something that we really have to be aware of and think about, you know, how do we individualize this for people a little bit better, right? How do we really focus on it early on? Um, how do we take it into account for our new fellows, but also the people that went through this, you know, right at the beginning? Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about, yeah, you mentioned the research aspect. I was thinking about when I look at all the applications who were who applying, I also saw the level of what you know, research they had been doing lately had changed from years prior and pre-pandemic in terms of the quality, the longitudinal nature, the size and scope of those things. You mentioned about mentorship and funding and then jobs that are available. And then also there's been an increase in sizes of ICUs in general. So seemingly directly there's more job and, and so forth for Palm Creek Care to shift into, into the ICU setting, at least. I guess, you know, how much of this is a manifestation that's just happening in this bubble time and that Will, versus will continue, you know, thereafter. And it goes to Jimena's point as well, is that it would be great to kind of see if some of these gaps are being addressed in the years to come. And do these people gain these skills back? Do the jobs change? Does research and so forth change back for the people who are coming in, but also the people who already graduated as well? So I'm going to move on to, to our third theme, which is the importance of social support at work for sustained well-being. Jimena, what did the trainees say were aspects of important social support? Well, this was a huge part, I think, of a lot of the conversations in terms of coping with everything that was happening. And there's social support at different levels. I think the most impactful or was the peer social support. So many trainees, fellows said, you know, even during like sign out in the morning when they, you know, that was a chance not only to learn about the patients, but then to just vent to each other. So like, people talking about lingering for like 20 extra minutes just to like vent about what was going on in the pandemic. Like what were people saying in the news? And then that was helping them to like continue to like produce this effort every day just due to the people they were around. In terms of like a higher level, I guess it would be attendings and division chiefs and departmental heads um, and hospital leadership. And so we heard about both really helpful patterns and maybe things that were less helpful. So I think if maybe focusing on some of the positives are that 
strong like leaders really motivated the entire staff to continue working. And my strong leadership included showing up, being part of the group that was on the front lines, and also just, you know, I guess, I guess that goes into developing strong leadership skills. And so I think that having those sort of networks at multiple levels is what really helped trainees cope and also, you know, feel that they could do this, that they could continue seeing their own attendings. It was funny. I think one person remarked, I shouldn't say funny, but it was interesting that one person remarked that, you know, I saw my attending who just wore like dress clothes every day back into scrubs, just like us. And I felt, okay, everyone's stepping up, everyone's doing it. And that helped them. And I think what, what that means also is we have to be cognizant of who we're putting into these positions. So we often select fellows and leaders based on like accomplishments and research and all of that. But like what is helping resilience and well-being is like some of these other skills like teamwork and ability to listen and ability to like get on someone's level. And how are we like fostering those sort of like skills and leadership and selecting for people that can do that when we put them in those positions? Yeah, that's that's very powerful stuff. You know, uh, talking about the resiliency of of the fellows, how they cope, use of teamwork, networks, collective response, leading by example, and then really, you know, and, and I think it speaks to that the importance of it not just during times of the pandemic, but in between and afterwards as well as as thinking about you know how to foster leadership in in our in our fellows. I think I'm now noticed we're saying this for every theme, but that was maybe a whole separate thing that was interesting about this cloud that the findings were that they applied in the pandemic, but you could take them to every day and now also. And that's what you want, right? Is that definitely out of all these types of studies, you want to be able to figure out what's the bigger, larger, generalizable and transferable types of, of, of information and themes that are coming from this. And yeah, all these things could be this, you know, set of importance outside of that uh, and going forward as well. Great. So with that, I'm going to move to the fourth theme, which was the maintenance of meaning and humanity in work. So what were the trainees' thoughts that led to this theme? Turn to Carrie. Sure. Yeah. So um, one of the, the main things that came up a lot was, you know, during, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when, you know, everything was just sort of, no one knew what was going on, right? Everything was, was sort of new and, and there were so many patients and, you know, people were really just thrown back into focusing on really just solely patient care. And what do you mean by that? Right. We were always focused on patient care, but, you know, as we all know, as, as clinicians, you know, there's a lot of sort of other things that need to be done every day. That's maybe not directly related to patient care, whether it's documentation or other sort of red tape and things like that, that maybe make it less efficient or, you know, less like you're sort of at the bedside, right. You're doing all these things that are not at the bedside that we sort of have to do at different levels. And one of the things that was remarkable that we heard a lot was that people were, were as stressful as a time this was for people and as difficult as it was, they were really just happy to be able to just be a doctor, you know, almost like back to the times in medical school where you're just thinking about medicine and like, no one's talking to you about what documentation in the medical chart is or, you know, and, and anything like that. And so that came up a lot. People, you know, the fellows really felt like we were just taking care of patients because we just wanted to, to do better, to help, to, to 
find out what was going on, to, you know, come up with the answers, to focus on the medicine. And so we heard that a lot. I mean, it made people feel like they were doing something really important and really good for people and for their patients. Um, so that was a really big thing that we heard within that theme. And, you know, the, the other thing was while people felt like they, you know, certainly were making a difference, there were other times where people struggled with the fact that they weren't really making, you know, progress with, with patient care. And that was something that we heard a lot too, sort of the frustration, not at just, you know, the, the science of it and the medicine, but, you know, the, the, the empathy for the patients and their families, you know, and the sort of the inability to make progress with some people or to watch them, you know, for a long period of time, be so sick. And, and we found that people really, you know, really struggled with that and, but found, you know, that those connections, the ability to be there at the bedside more, to be able to connect with the family members, obviously, you know, whether it be with video FaceTime or what, what people were doing at the time, you know, they found to be very beneficial. And so, it was sort of in some things in contrast to each other in very interesting ways. And, you know, really that just like the level of empathy amongst everybody was sort of at an all time high. And, you know, at the same time, people, while they felt that level of empathy also, you know, described some sort of feelings of numbness and sort of trying to grasp and gravel, you know, between the two came difficult for people. And then, so we, we did hear that a lot as well. Now, very interesting. Yeah, I'm just thinking about kind of humanity, our kind of social connectedness of everyone between, you know, ourselves as clinicians and providers and, and with our, everyone who's working, but also with our patients and our, our family members and kind of, you know, what happened there and how we kind of reinstituted some of that connectedness over, over time as well. And then the final theme was the trainee's desire for support to process emotions and experiences. So, Jamuna, how did, how did the fellows process their emotions during this period? We made a list of all the different emotions that people said, and there was a lot of very, you know, heavy emotions, remembering back to the list, but there were also ones of pride and like fulfillment, in addition to like anger and severe distress and uh, that, that people were saying, and that those are very different things. And some people had both of those at different times during the day. And so I think that can be really difficult to have guilt. You know, if you feel like, wow, I did a great job taking care of this patient, but in the context of like total sadness and distress, like how do you reconcile those emotions? They're very, I mean, I think they're very difficult. And I think it made people maybe feel guilty about times where they felt proud, but then also some people didn't have those feelings and they just felt numb. Like, I don't feel anything. I'm just doing my job. And so then how, what, but then they're being told that certain people are so distressed. So then how do the numb people, do they feel like maybe they just don't have feelings? You know, those are all really complicated. And I don't, I mean, I am by no means the person to answer like from a mental health standpoint, but I think maybe that's also part of it. And I think that's what came up in the theme is we don't know how to deal with all these different emotions and that different people are also finding different things helpful. Like some people find group therapy helpful. Some people find talking to their family helpful. And so we don't know like systematically what helps the most. And, and, and that also that, again, these, these feelings come up in day-to-day -day critical care and we still have, I mean, I think there's very little in the curriculum or that's about, you know, debriefing or mental health and that program directors, for example, 
are often or seem to be some of the first responders to like mental health issues and like what sort of training do they have? Is it consistent? Is it evidence-based? I don't know. And like, what is the evidence we need to make some impact here? So I think all of those were brought up by the different participants when just discussing their emotions and, and like reflecting on their emotions during this time period. Mm. It's quite a wide range of kind of emotions and how they processed it. And I, I just think that oftentimes we bring like a potpourri of options to them of like, well, you know, one size doesn't fit all, how, whatever pathway you need, you know, to to deal with your kind of particularly the, the negative emotions, how, you know, with processing and we offer them different, different possibilities. But then I also think about, yeah, how are we as, you know, kind of APDs and other key clinical faculty and so forth, we may be the, be the ones in the, in the positions to see it and to be the first ones to deal with it. And so what type of training do we have? That's actually a very good point that uh, I want to think more about. <laughs> so, you know, really enlightening stuff. And I guess my last question for both of you is, as you reflect afterward, what are some of the tangible changes that you or other training institutions should consider suggested by your study? So, you know, we, we alluded to some of this already, but, you know, I think First and foremost, people just being aware, you know, of this paper, of this study and of these themes, right? Because we obviously, you know, we uncovered this, but we don't, this doesn't mean that we have the answer or the solution, but I think a lot of what we uncovered are things that, as we've said, are probably not, are not new with the pandemic. It's just that they were so it was so condensed into, you know, every single day, every single patient brought out a lot of, a lot of this, whereas a lot of what we've talked about is maybe not necessarily a new thing, especially in critical care, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the issues around humanity, around processing emotions, right? You don't start critical care fellowship and, and hear about, you know, well, this is going to happen. So you're going to have mixed emotions. And this is, you know, ways that you can deal like no one talks about that. No one says that, but of course we've gone through that just maybe not at the degree or the level that, you know, happened during the pandemic. So, you know, there's definitely opportunity there, I think, to take a look at how we are supporting our trainees and, you know, from the beginning of their training, you know, to be prepared to deal with some of this and to help individualize it based on what people's needs are. So I think that's number one. And then, you know, the other thing is some of this that was really truly due to the pandemic, a lot of this career development stuff that we've talked about, you know, it really has had such an impact. And even after doing the study, we were always remarking at, at the continued impact on people's career development. I mean, you know, to be frank, even our own sometimes, you know, and so I think, you know, it's really important that people are aware and people think, yes, okay, fellows went through this incredibly stressful time. You know, everyone did when, when the pandemic first started for any variety of reasons, but people are still, you know, the living the repercussions of that in a variety of ways. And, you know, how can we support people and just be aware and think about it when we're thinking about, you know, helping people with where they're going to look for a job, a job offer, deciding what they want to do with their, you know, with their careers is really important. Yeah, I think those, I mean, I agree with all of those. And I think maybe one, maybe one additional takeaway is like the level of intervention. So I think there's only so much that you can put back on the trainee or the fellow. And that I think this has come up before in the critical care, like, research about, you know, supporting, you know, not, I don't even want to say resilience, but success, like what, it, what makes, what makes a successful training program to make successful critical care doctors. And it 
can't be on them. It has to be on the structures that they're working in. So by that, I mean like the institutional policies and the institutional resources and, and national as well. I mean, one example is like when thinking about, you know, mental illness and destigmatizing those things, like I think many institutions still have you like disclose things like depression, which we know are so prevalent, but those are barriers to actually like getting the help you need or getting a diagnosis. And so I think similar to that policy, just looking at what else is done on an institutional level to really address some of these areas that we've think, highlighted in our paper. That's fantastic. I feel like more and more I read your paper, the more and more I see how much is just applicable outside of the pandemic, just to the greater sense of of kind of critical care trainees in, in general and to a broader, you know, thoughts going forward. Great. So thank you, Jimena and Carrie, for you know spending some time with us and sharing your insights into the into the trainee needs created by COVID-19, but it goes beyond that, as well as an exemplar for those considering qualitative research and really the merits of it and the benefits that it can lead to. Well, that does it for us and this latest scholarly podcast. And for those podcast listeners, Dr. Krishnan and Dr. Aronson's article on evolving needs of critical care trainees during the COVID-19 pandemic, a qualitative study, is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Bye for now. <laughs>